What is up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast. My guest today is Dr. David Stukas. How's it going, sir? Great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. For sure. So uh, please give us a basic uh, rundown of uh, your personal background, and uh, yeah, then we'll be able to get into uh, the meat and potatoes of, uh, of the episode today. Absolutely. Well, I'm a pediatric allergist, uh, which means I'm a pediatrician by heart, and I take care of children and teenagers and young adults who have a whole host of common conditions like asthma, seasonal allergy, dog allergy, food allergies, eczema, uh, problems with their immune system, things like that. I love my job because, unfortunately, these are some of the most common conditions that affect kids and teenagers, and I can generally make them feel better, uh, which is good. Uh, it's a lot of education and self-management, um, but we want people to be able to do all the things they want to do, like play sports and go to school and hang out with their friends. I am uh, a big sports fan. I'm from Pittsburgh originally, so I'm born and raised. Uh, therefore, I am a Pittsburgh sports fan. Some of the, your listeners may disagree with my choice, but it's in my blood. And uh, growing up, I was a, a, a wannabe athlete, but I participated in wrestling and baseball. Those are my two go-to sports. And, and now it's a lot of fun for me to, to get out and, and play with our kids and uh, just be as active as I possibly can. Nice. Well, um, if you ask my dad, he'd say that you're probably in the best place in the entire world for sports because he's a Buckeye and uh, Columbus is, uh, is a pretty cool place to be. So can't uh, ha- got to throw that out there. So I'm originally from Ohio. I grew up around like the Springfield Dayton area. And uh, yeah, if I ever moved back to the great state of Ohio, I would want to live in Columbus. So it's a cool we, place. We love it here. I'm a Buckeye fan. My I married into a Buckeye family. Uh, so yeah, go Bucks. But I'm also a Pitt Panther guy. So Buckeye Nation takes it for granted. You know, it, with Pitt, if we get six wins a season, that's a great year for us. So... <laughs> Not about what national championship every year. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, you mentioned you're you're an allergy specialist. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what are the most common allergies that youth athletes experience, um, so that uh, youth athletes are more aware, so that their parents are more aware, and so that coaches as well as well are are more aware of uh, what the I guess potential dangers are. Yeah, there's two main categories. One would be environmental or inhalant airborne allergies, and that's going to be both to indoor and outdoor things. So outdoor pollen, right now is the springtime, so tree pollen is elevated in a lot of a lot of the country. Uh, in the summertime is grass and weeds, in the fall it's ragweed, then we have mold spores floating around. And with environmental allergies, it can really impact uh, those who participate in outdoor athletics. When pollen counts get really high, it can make people very miserable itchy, watery eyes, sneezing, runny nose, stuffy nose, congestion, or if you have asthma, it can really make it hard for you to breathe. So, you know, it's, it's hard enough playing soccer, you know, at a high level, let alone if you can't see out of your eyes, you can't breathe out of your nose, or if you can't, you know, get air into your lungs. So that can mm-hmm. be a big issue. And then the second big category would be anybody who has food allergies. And a food allergy reaction can cause rapid onset in severe symptoms. It can progress from skin rash and hives to swelling, vomiting, difficulty breathing, or people even passing out. And the Mm. most common food allergens would be peanuts and tree nuts, seafood and shellfish, 
milk, eggs, wheat, and soy. So hopefully anybody who's, you know, by, a t- by the time you're a teenager, uh, hopefully you've been properly diagnosed and you know how to avoid what you're allergic to and have your epinephrine with you at all times just in case. But accidents do occur, so it's important that coaches be aware as well, especially if there's any food or snacks that are being consumed around the practice facility or during games. Gotcha. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a mini trip into a time machine right now to tell you uh, when I was in high school, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, when I started eating certain kinds of cheese, my it felt like my throat was closing up. And it, it was like cheddar. And then I found out I couldn't really eat Gouda. And, and then I couldn't eat feta. And even now, if I have feta, sometimes I'm like, oh, and I feel like I have to have like a big glass of water nearby. And I'm just like chugging water every every you know, 30 seconds or so just to like make sure I uh, feel like I can breathe. So what's your, uh, what's, what's going on there? (laughs) It's unusual. That's a little inconsistent with a milk allergy because if you were allergic to milk, then you wouldn't be able to eat any type of cheese or drink milk or eat ice cream or, you know, pizza or stuff like that. But I wonder if there's Mm -hmm. something in the fermentation process or uh, something about the consistency of those cheeses that make you feel that way. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I can eat cheddar now. Like I, I eat tons of cheese. I, I am obsessed with milk, um, and like I don't have any issues with it. But every once in a while, um, if I have like a little too much feta, I'm still like, mm. and then like ten, fifteen minutes go go by, and I'm totally fine. It's not a problem. But yeah, there were there were a few times where when I was in high school where I thought, uh. Maybe I should go to the hospital because this is scary. But <laughs> thankfully, everything turned out all right. And then I just kind of avoided cheese for a while. And uh, that was that was tough for me. That was really difficult. But thankfully, no more no more issues there. So, uh, so you mentioned like pollen, and since moving here to Dallas, uh, which was back in 2012. Um, I didn't really have any issues with allergies, but everyone here was always complaining about these seasonal allergies, like like ragweed and and you know once all the trees start uh, pollinating, like it will cover the like uh, a layer on all the cars, like you can see it, like you can, it's like this yellow dust, it's disgusting, and <laughs> it wasn't a problem. For me the first couple years and and i think now more and more it's it's maybe becoming an issue and so um i heard like not just here in texas but i've heard people kind of all over just say oh you just need to eat some local honey right mm-hmm. so what's what's the whole idea between or behind consuming local honey and seasonal allergies it's a marketing scheme to get you to buy local honey <laughs> And it's expensive. I'll explain, yes. (laughs) All right, so here's the theory. We can desensitize people with allergies by giving them something called allergy shots. Mm. We take what you're allergic to, we dilute it down into very small concentrations, then we inject it back into the body on a regular build-up schedule, and then we give it to you every month for years and years, and your body then becomes tolerant. Mm So the people selling honey have taken this sort of pseudoscientific slant on it. And they say, oh, well, honey has pollen in it. 
Therefore, if I eat honey, then I'll desensitize myself. Well, there's a few big issues with that. One, honeybees collect pollen from things like flowers and non-windborne plants. Hmm. That's not what causes allergies. The pollen from flowers is actually too large to get inside our eyes, noses, and lungs to cause you know, breathing issues. People develop allergies to smaller pollen from trees and grass. It's not the same pollen that bees collect. Hmm. Two, any pollen from trees and grasses and weeds that end up in, inside, the, inside honey, it's going to be inconsistent. Uh, so you're not actually knowing how much you're getting on a regular basis. And then lastly, if you were allergic to pollen and then you ate a mouthful of it, it wouldn't make you feel better. It would make you have an allergic reaction inside <laughs> you. So a couple big issues. Honey's delicious. It's great. It can actually help some people when you have a sore throat. Um, and we never want to give it to babies less than 12 months of age due to risk for botulism. Mm. But other than that, don't buy it for any mythical, magical properties. Buy it for- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love honey. And uh, I have to admit, I've been guilty of, of recommending local honey to some of my clients who, who are dealing with some allergies. So I will cut that out. I'm not going to do that anymore. Um I can't believe, like, that's so crazy. That blows my mind. But it makes total sense. Like, but I get that mansplained to me all the time as an allergist. That's usually like, Dave, nice to meet you. I'm an allergist. Oh, yeah. My allergies were out of control, so I started eating raw, organic, local (laughs) combination. Okay, thanks. Yeah, placebo is a powerful effect. Uh Uh-huh. Hey, listen, (laughs) if any of us spent... $10 $10 on a little jar of something thinking it's going to make us feel better. Believe me, we're going to feel better when we eat it. <laughs> yep. That's the truth. That's the truth. So, uh, there's, there's differences between, uh, like foodborne allergens and some of these environmental allergens. And then, uh, or I guess this is completely separate altogether. Um, the idea of like uh, exercise induced and non-exercise induced asthma. So can you tell us the difference between those two and, and, uh, yeah, we'll start there. Yeah. So asthma is, um, a very common chronic condition It's diagnosed based upon the history and people with asthma share two features inside their lungs. One is they have inflammation that's always there. For some people, the inflammation is quite severe and it leads to more, um, severe symptoms and frequent symptoms for other people. It's not that severe. And the second shared hallmark is you get reversible squeezing of the muscles surrounding the airways, which can make you cough, wheeze, have difficulty breathing. So asthma is reversible episodes of that bronchoconstriction with inflammation. But there's different causes of asthma. There's different triggers of asthma. There's different severities of asthma. So it is not one size fits all. For some people, the act of exercising vigorously can actually provoke that squeezing of the muscles inside the lungs. It's a very specific trigger, and it actually comes from dryness of the air. Because as you start breathing faster and faster, the air gets very dry, you lose the humidity, and that can trigger those muscles to squeeze. Hmm. It's a common misconception that anybody with asthma will have symptoms with exercise. That is not the case at all. There are some people that have asthma triggered by outdoor pollen allergies, pet allergies, sometimes it's indoor allergens, it can be weather changes, is exposure to tobacco smoke, perfumes, scented candles, essential oil diffusion. Um, and if they have poorly controlled asthma at baseline and then they try to exercise, then they may have issues, which is very different than somebody who has no symptoms at all until they try to exercise. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. 
So, because, yeah, that that was kind of one of the things that I assumed was that if you have asthma and then you exercise, it's going to make that worse. And that's not necessarily the case. Not necessarily the case. The only way to tell is by trial and error. And then for some people, they're fine with certain sports. So swimming is a great sport for exercise-induced asthma because you're breathing in humidity. So it helps with mm. that. Um Winter sports can be hard because the air is very dry. Uh, so it's drier to begin with and you're breathing faster. Or some people are fine most of the time, but then the weather changes all of a sudden or it's rainy weather. They get a cold and then they may have issues during exercise. So we really work with each individual to figure out their pattern. And then it, for those that have consistent symptoms during exercise, we will pre-treat with albuterol, which is a dilator of those muscles inside the airways. Take your albuterol 15 minutes before you practice or play a game. And then if you have symptoms again during, use your albuterol again to help open up your airways and make you breathe. Gotcha. So this is a, I don't know if this uh, overlaps at all, but there's a, within the past probably 10 or 15 years, a huge surge of people doing all of these breathing techniques uh, within the health and wellness kind of spectrum. And uh, like specifically a guy like, uh, Wim Hof, who's developed his whole technique of, uh, of ac actually activating the vagal nerve and doing all of this really crazy, interesting stuff. And he's able to, uh, to deal with extreme cold weather exposure. Uh, he has like the Guinness world record for sitting in an ice tub for like 90 minutes and then getting out and then not needing any external heat to like warm his body back up, like just crazy stuff. Would doing these breathing exercises, would that assist someone with either exercise or non-exercise induced asthma? Or is that is that something that's just completely separate? It's, it's a bit of a different issue. Um, and, you know, th this gets a little complicated pretty quickly. So the, the heart of the matter is, is there evidence to support this? And not really. Um, you know, if you're having bronchospasm of the muscles surrounding the airways, we really need to use medications to help relieve that. Um, and just breathing exercises alone are unlikely to do that, let alone, you know, the actual practical application of, can you teach somebody to actually do these, let's say they did work, do them in an effective manner in the moment when they are actually struggling to breathe? Mm. Um, piece all that together and that could be a recipe for disaster for some folks relying on that instead of using their well-proven uh rescue inhalers gotcha yeah that that makes sense because uh, there are instances of people doing these exercises and actually passing out mm -hmm. so that would probably not be very helpful if you're having yeah. an asthma attack <laughs> no no you would not want that <laughs> <laughs> So uh, a lot of your posts lately have uh, dealt with COVID. So I remember that early on, asthma was listed as a risk factor for severe illness from COVID. Is that still the case? No, it's fascinating. Um, early on, it was listed because for a lot of people with asthma, respiratory viruses, uh, you know, there are dozens of viruses that circulate every year that cause the common cold or influenza or you name it. Those are a very common trigger for asthma. You get sick with a cold, within a day or two, your muscles are squeezing, your lungs are filled with mucus and you can't breathe. Well, since um, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, is a respiratory virus, 
and it causes a lot of respiratory symptoms, it was presumed that this would be a big deal for people with asthma. It made sense. Well, it turns out it's the opposite. So we now have multiple studies, and the strongest type of study is something called a meta-analysis, where you pull all of the data from all the studies. And these meta-analyses have all shown that having asthma or diagnosis of asthma doesn't increase your risk to catch COVID and doesn't increase your risk to have more severe illness if you do get it, which is remarkable. We don't fully understand why. There's actually some cool data that shows people with asthma, some types of asthma, may naturally have less receptors in their body that this virus binds to. Mm. And the, uh, daily inhaled steroids, which is a common controller for people with persistent asthma, may also downregulate those receptors. So we don't know if that's what's actually happening here or, or uh, are people with asthma just taking less risks and wearing masks and getting less sick in general or, or who knows what. All I can say is it's been a very good year for a lot of people who have asthma. We've seen significant decline in emergency room visits and hospitalizations and overall exacerbations. So we actually have good news to share for a change. That's awesome. That is good because um, uh, I've got a few friends who were, I don't know if if you can be too careful during a pandemic, but they were uh, excessively conservative. And, and the reason was because they had asthma uh, either when they were er- like early on, earlier on in life, or uh, slight asthma now, and they were just like, mm, I'm just not gonna make any risks at all. So that's kind of nice that that can. That's good news. That's very good news. So I don't recommend people with asthma stop wearing masks or start licking door handles. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, that if you follow the recommended public health precautions, that you know, hopefully you're gonna do just fine. Awesome. So, uh, the Johnson and Johnson, uh, vaccine is, is, I guess, getting more well-known. Um, like the, uh, I've seen some of the, some of the graphs on Twitter and, and there's all kinds of funny memes because of the shape and, and the name and ha ha ha, <laughs> that's good stuff. But, uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of the differences between the, the vaccine types? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, you know, I'd like to start by saying that this uh, this is not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating, Kevin. This is the greatest scientific achievement in the history of humanity. Hmm. And I say that is because it's only been one year since COVID was declared a global pandemic. And now we have three separate vaccines that are all extremely effective and extremely safe, not only just in research, we're actually distributing them in the population. That's unheard of. These weren't rushed into production. It's just that at no point prior to this did we ever have such a a high demand to have vaccines available for these deadly diseases, Mm -hmm. nor have all the attention and money sort of thrown at this problem. So it just goes to show what can be achieved uh, when you remove all the red tape. So again, no no corners were cut. Uh, This is some of the most transparent and robust science that you can possibly imagine. All the data are readily available. And that being said, we started off with two vaccines in December and January in the United States, Pfizer and Moderna. These are a new technology called messenger RNA vaccines. They're not new. They've been around for 20 years, but this is the first time they're actually used to help fight off infection. And then we have the Johnson Johnson vaccine, which is a viral vector. The differences are none of them can cause disease. 
they all help our immune systems produce this spike protein, which is what the coronavirus uses to attach to our body. So we don't produce the virus. It doesn't actually cause infection. But by, by um, helping our immune systems produce this spike protein, our immune system then develops memory. Therefore, if we actually see coronavirus in real life, we won't get nearly as sick and we won't spread it as much. The RNA vaccines are, it's like a blueprint. So we slip it into our immune system. It's a blueprint that tells our cells how to produce this spike protein. Then the blueprint gets dissolved very rapidly. It doesn't sort of integrate into our DNA. It doesn't cause us to become mutants or anything like that. And then we build this immunity. Both the Pfizer and Moderna RNA vaccines require two doses. One is three weeks apart. One is four weeks apart. And you're fully immune two weeks after your second dose. So it's about six weeks after your first dose. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses some of the tried and true technology that's traditionally been used where you actually take a killed, another type of virus, because viruses are really good at getting into our cells. You hijack onto the virus with this spike protein. Then when it's inside our cells, our immune system says, you don't belong here. I'm going to form memory antibody against you. The cool thing with the Johnson Johnson vaccine is one dose, mm-hmm. and then you're immune about two to four weeks later. Um, so these are all very effective. They're all very, they just work slightly different from each other, but it is remarkable that we have all of these available uh, to give to millions and millions of people. Yeah, the the one awesome thing about the internet and, and free speech is that, you know, anybody can talk about this. And the unfortunate thing is that I've heard people say that this is, you know, it's going to change your DNA and it's going to have effects on all of your cells downstream. And it's like, mm, I don't think that's how mRNA vaccines work. Like that's, I mean, I had biochemistry in grad school and I'm not an expert, but I'm pretty sure that's not how it works. So it's really nice to have an actual, you know, doctor come on and be able to explain that um, in a way that, you know, a six-year-old can understand it, which I think is pretty important. <laughs> so um, so for athletes, right, um, you said it's about, what, four to six weeks after the first dose, you're, you're considered, quote-unquote, you know, fully vaccinated or whatever. Um, how long after getting uh, a vaccine shot, can an athlete go back to, uh, practice or competition or, uh, regular return to play? Yeah. I mean, there's no restriction, uh, which is nice. Now, um, some of the side effects are quite common. I, you know, I received the Moderna vaccine and my arm was pretty sore for about 36 hours afterwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, if you know, you have a practice or competition coming up, maybe get it in your non-dominant arm, uh, you can absolutely take some ibuprofen or Tylenol afterwards to help. And you don't want to baby it. You want to use it in some way. But just mm-hmm. kind of for that. So time it out accordingly. Some people do develop low-grade fever or chills. They feel like they have the flu for a day or two afterwards. Um, so you may want to build that into your timing as well. But otherwise, you know, exercising itself isn't going to, you know, decrease your body's ability to take up the vaccine and respond to it or anything like that. Gotcha. So because I know some people are like, uh, they're afraid of, you know, exercise induces temporary immunosuppression. And if I'm taking this vaccine or if I'm training really intensely, that's going to put me at uh, at a greater risk of getting, you know, 
the virus. Um, but as long as you're, you know, taking things into, uh, into account and not doing anything crazy, shouldn't be any issues. Yeah, the evidence supporting what you just mentioned, I mean, it's pretty limited, and it really was very high-intensity exercise and a very small number of participants in these research studies, and they showed a temporary decline in some of their antibody levels. And that's very different than actually giving somebody an active vaccine to see if they would respond, because the vaccine mm. is circulating. I mean, you're, it's in your body, and your immune system has a chance to respond to it over hours to days. Um but yeah, I guess it makes common sense. If you're going to run a marathon, you know, time it out so you don't do it the day before you get your vaccine or the day after. Um, <laughs> or if you're doing some high intensity. It, I, I would hope that some common sense would prevail at some point when it comes to some of this stuff. Well, for some people, that's a lot to ask for. <laughs> <laughs> Especially endurance athletes who tend to be extremely smart, except when it comes to their own training, which is hilarious. <laughs> I can say that I'm an endurance athlete. Um, so uh, I've heard some people say that, you know, sometimes vaccines themselves can contain uh, allergens. So are there any allergy risks associated with the uh, COVID-19 vaccines? You know, when, when they were all being investigated in the early studies as allergists, we said, these are great. There's no food in them. There's no, you know, lo no latex in the first two. Um, no antibiotics, nothing like that. So they're, they're essentially allergen-free. Mm. And then the first day they started distributing these in Europe, in the United Kingdom, they had two people have severe allergic reactions. I went, oh, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and since that time, there's been ongoing reports, and this is being monitored extremely closely. And there are very rare um, severe allergic reactions occurring. They're almost all happening in the first 30 minutes which is why it's advised to, to be monitored for 30 minutes. And they're all uh, very easily treatable, uh, many of which they get epinephrine, which reverses all the symptoms right away. Uh, and nobody's you know, died or had you know, severe outcomes from it. So uh, we're talking like you know, two to four out of a million doses, mm -hmm. uh, that's how rare it is. So 999,995 people out of a million don't have an allergic reaction. <laughs> it's pretty rare. Yeah. Um, and, but there's a lot of symptoms that occur that sort of mimic an allergic reaction. There's that too. So some people just feel funny. They feel tingling or they may have flushing and um, they may feel like they're having an allergic reactions. Somebody not experienced in this would say, oh my gosh, you're having a severe allergic reaction when that's actually not the case. Mm -hmm. But as far as the cause, we can't find the cause. There's no common ingredient or common cause. There's been some attention towards a couple of the ingredients that are inactive called polyethylene glycol or, poly or polysorbate. And these are commonly used in medications and over-the-counter beauty products and also vaccines as sort of like excipients. But even that hasn't panned out. So we like they, these um, academic centers develop these extensive allergy testing algorithms for people with suspected reactions. They do all the testing and they're negative. So mm -hmm. bottom line, they're very safe. Allergic reactions are extremely rare. All vaccines should be given in a facility where you should be watched for 30 minutes with you know, treatment available just in case the one in a million scenario occurs. And for anybody out there that has food allergy, medication allergy, venom allergy, environmental allergies, latex allergy, you can receive these vaccines without any precautions, without any uh, concern. That's awesome. That's good to know. Um, I, I don't know if it was listening to the podcast that you did with Dr. Kelso or, or something else, but... Um, the the quote-unquote side effects 
after a vaccine, like the like maybe you have a headache or maybe you feel like uh, you're you've got flu-like symptoms. Um, for people who I guess are a little like worried or leery about that, can you uh, I guess quell some of that concern? Like what what do those symptoms mean? I guess it means your immune system is happy and it's practicing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Means it's working. <laughs> Normal expected responses. Uh, there, there's a variety of reactions or responses people can have. Um, you know, coronaviruses in general have been around. It, it's a common cause of childhood colds and illnesses. So we've all been exposed to similar type viruses, just not this one. So there may be some recognition from our immune system to some prior exposure. Uh, that's why you have some of the mild symptoms. Um, it could just be our immune system response to a foreign protein as well. And some people just have a more robust response. Um, for reasons we don't fully understand, women tend to have some more exaggerated responses, especially delayed like swelling and rashes at the site of the reaction. Uh, we have no idea why that is uh, compared to men. Other people in, in general have a tendency, like if you have autoimmune conditions or if you tend to react strongly to vaccines in general, then you may have the same response. But by and large, almost all of these are very um, self-limited and, uh, you know, they go away within a couple of days and they don't really cause major issues. Gotcha. Um, that's perfect. So let's shift kind of back away from COVID and back to kind of, uh, allergies and, and asthma and things like that. So here in Texas, a couple weeks ago, we went from like, 40s and 50s most of the time to all of a sudden like in the teens people were losing power people were losing water like uh things things changed super quickly when it came to the weather so how can these drastic changes in in weather or the introduction of extreme weather how can that affect things like asthma and allergies yeah, that's actually can be a big trigger for a lot of people. Hot to cold, cold to hot, dry to wet, wet to dry. So the spring and the fall especially can be, you know, times of rapidly shifting weather patterns. Um, it We used to think maybe it's like the barometric pressure, but that hasn't panned out. We don't fully know why. Um, but for people with asthma, if they have that history, they should be on the, the lookout. And a lot of the, the families I work with, they get very good at reading weather reports um, mm -hmm. and know if changes are coming that they should be on the lookout or maybe spend more time indoors during that time. And then there's also a phenomenon for some people, if you have outdoor pollen allergies and there's a thunderstorm, the thunderstorm can produce these um, specific types of wind patterns. It, what it does is it actually shears the plants and the pollen. So it sort of slices them and mm -hmm. it makes them into these, you know, like micro pollen that, that then become very, very good at getting inside the airway and the lungs and things like that. So if you have pollen allergies and asthma, the time right after a thunderstorm can actually produce very severe exacerbations. And mm -hmm. there's reports from across the world in the 24 to 36 hours after a severe thunderstorm where emergency room visits go up and deaths can actually go up as well from that. Wow. That's phenomenon that, um, is that is fascinating because I would never have thought that <laughs> thunderstorms would be affecting asthma that's so crazy that is great that blows my mind so uh i 
kind of in passing mentioned the podcast that you did with Dr. Kelso, and that answered a ton of questions for me with regards to information about the vaccines. So can you tell us a little bit about um, about the podcast and uh, and kind of direct us towards like how can people watching and listening, how can they find that? Sure. Um, well, thanks for bringing, thanks for listening and mentioning. So I'm, I'm the producer and host of the podcast series called Conversation. And this is sponsored by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Uh, I'm actually their social media editor for this professional organization, which is the largest professional organization for allergists and immunologists in the world. Uh, so we started the podcast a couple of years ago. I think we have about 44 episodes now. We get about 2,000 downloads per episode. So it's, it's a pretty niche area. But um, a lot of the topics cover some of the more common conditions that people face and questions they have. Uh, and it's it's an honor for me to have some of the experts in our field on where I get to ask them basic questions and let them show us all, you know, how much uh, knowledge they have. And, and we all learn by listening to them. So if anybody wants to check it out, you can just search uh, org podcasts. Um, and it's easy on the website to find. You can also subscribe to it on um, Apple and Google Tune or Google and Spotify. Awesome. Well, I am a subscriber. Thanks. For sure. So, um, the, the way that I came across your work was on Instagram originally. So can you tell us about, uh, like when you started posting about all this, really all of this, uh, allergy and asthma related stuff and as well as the, I mean, you're like my go-to for 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 COVID stuff right now too, because it's it's just super interesting. Uh, what did what was one of the recent posts? Uh, I forgot specifically what it was called, but it was like the the rash on the elbow, mm. like COVID arm or whatever they're COVID calling arm. it. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm talking about with women with the delayed swelling. Yeah. Yeah. So super interesting stuff. Can can you tell us uh, how people can follow you? Yeah, I, uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Both accounts are at AllergyKidsDoc. Uh, I've been active on social media for about eight years, and these are my professional accounts. Uh, so I'm out there to try to combat misinformation and uh, send out evidence-based information to provide people with some, some basic you know, information that they can use and see if it applies to their own medical care. I, I can never give individual medical advice, nor should anybody mm-hmm. on social media. That's a that's a huge no-no, and a lot of people ask for it, and they get terrible advice, uh, even my own patients. But I can give you resources and vetted information that you can trust, and then ideally you take that information and you you ask your own doctor and say, hey, does this apply to me? How do we want to consider this in regards to my care? So uh, if anybody's interested, feel free to check me out on Instagram or Twitter, and uh, I love engaging with people, and um, hopefully uh, I'll give you some information that you didn't know before. Well, I've learned a lot. So I appreciate your posts. Um, Dr. Stukas, thank you so much for, uh, for your time. And I, I really appreciate you answering all these questions. Um, it's, it's one of those things I was not actively looking for. Like, I don't want to just inject uh, a doctor into my podcast to talk about, you know, COVID. Like, I felt like, mm, that's not really my lane. But where there were these overlaps in in just so many of my clients are like hey i'm i've i've got one shot down i've got one more to go and i'm like hey you know how 
how how does it feel? How's everything going? Like, mm, I was sore for a day, but that was pretty much it. And I was like, well, then let's get back to work. So there were things like that that I just wanted to uh, be able to ask an expert about. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you very much for inviting me. And I hope this is helpful for your listeners. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it will be. So already I'll go follow Dr. Stukas and stay tuned for next week's episode. Adios.